Thanks for listening to The Chapel Podcast. At The Chapel Church, our passion is to share the hope of Jesus to individuals, the community, and the world. Listen in as Pastor Brandon Joyner shares an encouraging and challenging message from God's Word. We're going to take a few moments here uh, this morning and continue our study through the Gospel of Matthew. During our trip, uh, past couple of weeks, we spent majority of our time 10,000 feet above sea level in the Medicine Bow National Forest in Wyoming. Uh, that particular forest is located about 40 minutes or so west of Laramie, Wyoming, which is where the University of Wyoming is located. Uh, right in the central part of Medicine Bow National Forest is Medicine Bow Peak. It's, right, it's really kind of the highest point of the Snowy Range Mountains, and my family, all of us except for Kennedy, uh, so including Emerson, had the opportunity to hike to the top of that, which is about a little over 12,000 feet above sea level. And so uh, it, was, it was a wonderful time to be able to hike and see all of that, but uh, one of the neatest things that we had the opportunity to experience is we didn't have any electricity, no running water, um, Luann already said she was out as soon as I said that. She's like, eh, it's no vacation for me. Uh, but we were completely separated. And so in the evening, because there wasn't a lot of uh, light around us, the sky was like significantly bigger than it is here in Chapel Hill. And we looked up in the, uh, we saw some stars that we just can't see over here in Chapel Hill. But one particular night, we noticed something kind of, we saw several different shooting stars, right? And that was pretty neat. But then we saw this, this, this string of lights, and some of you already know what I'm referring to when I say this string of lights. I looked up in the sky and I'm like, what is that? Now we have a video of it and uh, it's going to be very difficult to see. So if you want to go ahead and show that at this time, I, I apologize. But if you look right in the center of the screen, you can see a little bit of light. And it's, it's probably maybe 10 or 13 or so lights that were just all kind of going along the sky and a string across. Now for us, like myself, that had no idea what this was, it was a little unnerving. I'm like, Aliens are real. Like, I thought that this whole thing was fake. But as we continue to have this conversation, we realized, before I, before I mentioned, does anybody have any idea what this is? Okay, I knew Travis would. And, if you, and I knew Michael, I knew you would as well. Um, this, the, these lights are a network of satellites that are stringed together to give the opportunity for every single person in the entire world, as long as they have a clear view of the sky, internet access, and it is spearheaded by no one other than Elon Musk. Elon Musk started this company called... Starlink, and it is the world's first and largest satellite constellation that uses a low Earth orbit to be able to provide internet access for anyone, virtually anywhere. So you could be in the jungles of Vanuatu and have internet access and scroll your Facebook because that's what we all desperately need. And so uh, you do have to give respect to Elon as far as this goes. He was on a mission to be able to provide every single person, no matter who they were, no matter what geographic location they were in, as long as they had a clear view, internet access. Now, I don't know if that's necessarily a good thing. I mean, maybe, maybe it is for some. My wife and I particularly enjoyed not having access to the internet for, for at least a week. But Similar in, in its foundation, but far different in its mission, Jesus Christ also came to earth to provide every single person an opportunity to have a new life through him. He offers salvation to everyone, no matter what race, no matter what ethnicity, no matter what culture, no matter what social economic status they are in. He provides this free gift of salvation to all. 
And the Gospel of Matthew does a phenomenal job in portraying Jesus as being the person to establish the kingdom of God. That's been our entire theme throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Jesus came to fulfill the will of his Father, and that is to establish his kingdom. Now, as we've observed, every single time Jesus would uh, perform a healing, perform a miracle to proclaim the truth, just without fail, Satan would come in either personally or he would use the influence of another person to try to get in the way of, of Jesus Christ establishing the kingdom of God to fulfill the will of God. And without fail, every single time, Jesus Christ, of course, navigates that because he's God and goes around it. And no matter what Satan tries to do, he could not overthrow the plan of God. We continue our study by turning to the Gospel of Matthew chapter 9 this morning. Matthew chapter 9. In the past several weeks, uh, Pastor Bryce had the opportunity to cover the beginning portion of that. My family and I had the opportunity to listen to both messages or to actually watch the entire sermon. Both times, both Sundays, we were out while we were in the car because we were in the car a lot uh, driving that 4,000-mile round-trip journey. But in both instances, Pastor Bryce did a masterful job in portraying for us the love and the care in Jesus as he heals a paralytic man and he forgives the worst of society. And as he mentioned last week, and I never had thought about it in this light, uh, the very person that is writing this gospel refers to himself as being the worst of the worst. And if I can be forgiven, then of course you or anyone else can be forgiven. We see the similar uh, thing mentioned by the Apostle Paul. He says, I am the chiefest of all sinners, being a murderer of Christians before he became a follower of Christ, and how God's grace is sufficient to cover any sin uh, that, that, that man commits as they come before him in that, that heart of wanting that grace of God. Jesus was on a mission to establish a new kind of love, a new kind of forgiveness that was not known among the religious leaders. Jesus was offending the pious religious leaders left and right by touching the unclean, by associating himself, as Pastor Bryce mentions last week, uh, with tax collectors and even eating with tax collectors and sinners. In fact, it was the outcast of society where Jesus spent most of his time because those were the people whom Jesus could help. It wasn't that Jesus didn't have the power to help the other people. It was that they didn't want it. They didn't want Jesus because the bottom line foundation was in order for them to receive Jesus, they had to repent. In other words, they had to give up their control of their sin and turn to Christ. And they really, that's what the religious leaders were propping themselves as being their God, and that was control. I don't want God, I don't want Jesus, because I'm going to have to give up something in order to come to Jesus, and that is the control, and that is something that they were not willing to give up. Jesus says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 13, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. And it wasn't that the righteous weren't in need of God's grace, the righteous being the externally righteous. Everybody's in need of God's grace, but they did not want it. And so Jesus said, I'm not going to focus my attention on you. It's a waste of time. I'm going to focus my attention on those that actually understand and realize and recognize that they are in need of the grace that I have to offer. But this entire message of Jesus did not sit well with the religious leaders, as has been our theme all throughout the Gospel of Matthew. Some were confused by the message. Some most rejected the message of Jesus. To repent and come to Jesus would mean to give up everything, and they just were not willing to do that. But even though we live in a different time today, we still face the same set of issues. People, some, 
outright do not want anything to do with Jesus. Others hide behind their good works. But both of them face the same issue. They do not want the grace that only Jesus has to offer because Jesus calls us to repent. Repentance involves the agreement with God about our sin. Our sin is wrong. We can't get anywhere because of our sin. It is only through Jesus that we can have new life. And so we repent, we turn away, and we come to Jesus. Jesus did not come to call the righteous but sinners to repentance. This was his mission. This was his purpose. This was the heart of Jesus. But unfortunately, most could not then, and they cannot today, handle this type of grace. In fact, we will discover this morning that not even the religious system itself could not handle what Jesus had to offer. So as we come to Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 through 17, Jesus is approached by John the Baptist's disciples. These were not men that were like the other religious leaders. They were, I believe, genuine. They were men that were fierce followers of John the Baptist, but they were confused by the mission of Jesus. They questioned Jesus as, as to why he and his disciples were not practicing certain aspects of the religious law. Jesus then uses their question as an opportunity to describe to them the difference between what he had to offer in comparison to the religious system. The underlying point that Jesus was making is that the kingdom of God and what he calls us to all rest upon Jesus. Therefore, Jesus changes everything. And the title of our message this morning is simply that. Jesus changes everything. We continue our study in the Gospel of Matthew uh, by reading Matthew chapter 9, verses 14 down to verse 17. It says, Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch pulls away from the garment, and the tear is made worse. Nor do they put new wine into old wineskins, or else the wineskins break, the wine is spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But they put new wine into new wineskins, and both are preserved. On one of our stops during our journey halfway across the United States, we uh, stopped at a place known as the Archway in Kearney, Nebraska. And we have a picture of that Archway. How many of you have ever traveled across the United States of America on, or at least portion of, 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 of the United States on uh, Interstate 80? How many of you have ever been on Interstate 80? Interstate 80 stretches from New York all the way over to San Francisco. And uh, it's actually the first interstate in all of the United States. And it really, honestly, is just a paving of the original Oregon Trail. I didn't realize that until we started going into this museum. It was a fascinating museum that highlights all the way from the, the time period of the covered wagons and the innovation of the United States with their travel all the way up to uh, the car. It stops at the car. It doesn't talk about the airplane here because it's looking at the road system. But what we didn't realize is that uh, you had a covered wagon and, and all the things that they endured and you had the Mormon trail, you had the Oregon trail and the Mormon trail was a group of, of Mormons led by Brigham Young and taking the group of, of people to the, what they would refer to as the promised land, eventually making their way to Utah, but crossing over from Illinois to, to Iowa and all those different states and making their way all the way through. And many of them died because they didn't recognize the intense winds and the storms that went through uh, the middle plains of the United States and driving a 33-foot trailer with a, behind a truck across the state of Nebraska, they are 
they have some intense winds in the middle of the United States. But through that process, the invention of the car changed travel as we know it. Of course, you had the Model T, and then from the Model T, you had all the other different cars, and how now today you can get in your car from New York and just a matter of a couple of days or two or three days drive from New York all the way to California, whereas just a few hundred years ago, it would take them a full year, if not more. The invention of the car changed everything. What Jesus Christ wanted the disciples to understand here is that he himself and what he had to offer changed everything that they knew about God, about religion, about grace, about mercy. Jesus changes everything. And so there's three points that Jesus makes here in this particular passage as far as the change that he brings. And the first point is this, Jesus changes rituals. Jesus changes rituals. Matthew records in verse 14, that the disciples of John the Baptist came to Jesus and asked, why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? Mark's recording of this particular event implies that both the disciples of John and the Pharisees asked the same question. Why do we fast and you don't? More than likely, several other religious groups asked Jesus this same type of thing. Now, currently, John the Baptist was in prison, but his followers were still fierce followers of him and what he proclaimed and preached. The question then is, why was fasting such a big deal? Now, fasting was an important role within the Jewish culture. If you were to go through the Old Testament, it was part of the law. In fact, that the Old Testament law actually only commands one time, a specific time in which everybody was to fast, and that was the Day of Atonement. The other types of fasting uh, were really uh, uh, supposed to be involuntary and specific reasons over repentance of sin and over earnest requests. That, that was the only time officially where they were to fast was the Day of Atonement. Other times they were supposed to fast personally over their sin and over an earnest request that they were facing. This particular fast that the disciples had brought before Jesus that they were referring to was not actually proclaimed and laid out within the law, it was more or less the result of a Jewish Orthodox teaching that the Pharisees presented before the people. It was, a tw- it was a fast that they were supposed to do twice a week. It was an expression that they were supposed to give as part of what they were told was the law that would draw them closer between themselves and God. It was not supposed to be ritualistic in any way, but they had turned that fast into a ritual. The fact that the disciples came to John, or the disciples of John came to God and asked them that question, why do you guys not fast and we do, demonstrates what was really going on in their heart. They didn't fast for the reason as to what we are supposed to fast for, drawing closer to God, repentance over sin. They were fasting for a way of them expressing their own spirituality. They had turned fasting into a ritual rather than a privilege that we can experience between us and God. That's what they were dealing with. Well, Jesus, obviously, in his response, recognized their issue behind that. And so he responds to them in verse 15, can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. Now, what does Jesus mean by all of that? For us to really have an understanding, we have to look at the Jewish culture when it comes to a wedding. We've talked about this before. There was two different stages of the wedding, the betrothal, and you had the actual ceremony. The betrothal was, was like our engagement, but a little bit stronger. Uh, those that were in the betrothal period were looked at as being officially married, but they did not have any physical relationship whatsoever. That did not take place until after the marriage ceremony. The betrothal typically lasted for about a year. 
But when that time came for that marriage ceremony, the groom or the, the bride party would go and they would get the bride out of the house of her parents because she still lived with them. They would march her through the streets. It would last for about seven days of feasting and celebrations and the uh, a bride would eventually be married to the groom and they would consummate their marriage. What Jesus Christ in this particular message, uh, passage is referring to himself as the bridegroom and he's referring to the attendants as the disciples. In other words, the friends of the bridegroom. And so what he's saying here is that during that particular time, those that would be with the bridegroom would be celebrating, they would be rejoicing, they would be experiencing the relationship because they were present with the bridegroom there at that particular moment. And so the purpose of fasting was a time of mourning and repentance and anticipation for the coming of Jesus. Jesus says that the reason why the disciples do not fast is because I'm right here with them. There's no reason for them to do that. Now, Jesus Christ does make a comment. He says, but the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. That phrase there, taken away from them, he's referring to his crucifixion. He's letting them know that someday soon I will be taken away, I will be killed and of course resurrected, and then I will be ascending into heaven, which is where he is today. At that time, it will be appropriate to fast, to, to mourn, to anticipate the longing of the, re- uh, the return of Jesus Christ. And so today, we face the appropriateness of fasting. We fast over things like an earnest prayer request or we fast over maybe a sin or an issue that we are dealing with. Some of you have fasted for some periods of time this year and that is appropriate to do so. But someday in the future, it will no longer be appropriate to fast because we will be in the presence of Jesus. The apostle John says in Revelation chapter 19 verses six through nine, he says, and I heard as it were, the voice of a great multitude as the sound of many waters and as the sound of mighty thundering saying, Alleluia, for the Lord God omnipotent reigns. Let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory for the marriage of the lamb has come and his wife has made herself ready. And to her, it was granted to be arrayed in fine linen and clean and bright for the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, right, blessed are those who are called to the marriage supper of the lamb. Someday soon, the bridegroom will return for his bride being the church. But until then, we fast and we pray. But there's something else that we can glean from this conversation between Jesus and the inquisitors. The disciples of John and the Pharisees missed the entire point of who Jesus was and why he was there. They were too busy looking at the rituals of the law that they failed to see the significance of the one that was standing there right before them. Everything that the law pointed towards, everything that the law discussed, everything that the law called for was fulfilled in the very man whom they were questioning. They were too busy looking to continue on with the rituals that they failed to see the grace that was standing right before them. Now, I think about this in a spiritual way for us today. I wonder how often we as Christians miss out on what God is teaching us, miss out on what God is showing us because we are too busy perhaps examining the rituals or looking to the next thing that we fail to see what God is doing right before us. Why does our Bible reading become stagnant? Because we look at it as being a ritual of just trying to gain more information rather than looking at it as an opportunity to encourage our hearts spiritually? Why does church become 
something that we no longer want to go to or be a part of because church becomes a ritual. Uh, we've always gone to church. That's what we do. We go to church on Sunday mornings at 1030. Not here, but we used to go to church on Sunday nights at six o'clock. We go to church on Wednesday nights at seven o'clock. That's just what we do. Church becomes a ritual and we fail to be encouraged by the opportunity we have at church with other believers. See, the disciples were too busy focusing on the ritualness of fasting that they failed to see the bigger picture of it all. And my urge us as Christians today is to examine our own hearts. Has there been elements within our Christian life that have become ritual, become dead, become stagnant because we're too busy focusing on the letter of the law, if we can explain it that way, rather than the beauty of it and the grace that we have in Jesus Christ? Jesus changes rituals. Number two, Jesus changes religion. Jesus uses two analogies in verse 16 and 17 to describe what he's doing here. And it kind of doesn't make sense for us within our time period, within the Eastern culture, but it made perfect sense for them, for those that were living during this particular time. Jesus says in verse 16, no one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment for the patch pulls away from the garment and the tear is made worse. Some of the people listening, especially those familiar with sewing, would have understood exactly what Jesus meant through this analogy. Brand new patches were not used to be sewn into old garments. Why? Because an old garment was, 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 was worn out over time. It was washed. It was stretched. And so it all had the same wear and tear. If you were to take a new patch or a new piece of cloth and patch that into the old garment, what will happen is during the washing process, the old garment would wash and stretch and tear, but the new garment had more... Um, rigidness to it would actually not stretch as much and when the wash would go through it would rip away the hold of that garment actually making it a bigger hole the point that Jesus was making here is that you cannot take the new covenant that Jesus brought to earth and mesh that in with the old mosaic law you can't do that. You can't take the works and the law and the religion and everything like that and mesh that in with the new covenant that Jesus came because why? It's a new covenant. It's completely different. Matter of fact, we oftentimes, at least for us, about four or five times a year, we observe what we refer to as the Lord's table. Okay, when we observe the Lord's table, it all goes back to the remembrance of what Jesus Christ did for us. If you were to look at Matthew chapter 26, verses 27 through uh, 28, Jesus Christ is instituting the Lord's table before the disciples. Jesus says this, drink from it. He's talking about the cup that we drink, which represents the blood. He says, drink from it, all of you, for this is my blood of the new covenant, which is shed for many for the remissions of sins. What is that new covenant? It's the freedom that we have in Christ through his death and his resurrection. It's the grace that we experience through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. The old covenant, the old garment, if you will, says that you must keep this and do this. It says that you are condemned. That's the point of the law was to show you and me just how just how sinful we truly are, but that's the old covenant. The new covenant through the grace of Jesus Christ, that new garment patch destroys the old garment. Therefore, the new covenant that Jesus offers is not compatible with old religion. The old religion cannot handle the grace of God. And this is what Jesus means through this analogy. I love what the apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 7 through 11. The apostle Paul says, but if the ministry of death written 
and engraved on stones was glorious so that the children of Israel could not look steadily at the face of Moses because of the glory of his countenance, which glory was passing away. How will the ministry of the Spirit not be more glorious? What is he talking about? The ministry of death is the law. The law was there to condemn. You have no hope through the law. He says, which we understand the law was delivered to Moses through the Ten Commandments being the foundation of that law. If you were to go back to Exodus and see that particular event, the Bible says that when Moses came down from receiving the Ten Commandments, he was glowing with glory. Why? Because the law itself represented the very character of God and because of the holiness and the care that the law represented, Moses had a physical glow about him, which the people had a difficult time looking at Moses. The apostle Paul says, that if that was that glorious and it was just death, how much more so is the spirit, the, 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 the work of the spirit, in other words, the new covenant, that more glorious? The apostle Paul continues on in that uh, particular reference and he says, for if the ministry of the condemnation had glory, the ministry of righteousness exceeds much more in glory. For even what was made glorious had no glory in this respect because of the glory that excels. For if what is passing away was glorious, what remains is much more glorious. Paul recognizes the fact that when the old law was delivered, it was glorious because it reflected the nature and character of God. But religion... The law cannot handle what Jesus has to offer in the new covenant. Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to be a continuation of the law. And what does this mean? Or what, what does man do when someone or something gets in their way is what Jesus was doing here? They either accept it or they remove it. And that's exactly what they did with Jesus. They removed him because it didn't match up with what they claimed to be, righteousness. Which leads us to our final point here this morning. Not only does Jesus change rituals, not only does he change religion, Jesus changes relationships. Now, I don't mean interpersonal relationships. Of course, he does do that, but it's not what he's referring to here in verse 17. Jesus says, nor do they put new wine into old wineskins or else the wineskins break and the wine is spilled and the wineskins are ruined, but they put new wine into new wineskins and both are preserved. When the wine ferments, it gives off gases that stretch the wineskins. New wine that was still in the fermentation process was placed in new wineskins, which still had some stretch in it. It could hold it as opposed to older wineskins when they no longer had any more give. The fresh leather could stretch and expand, but older leather has already stretched as much as it can. Fresh wine and old wineskins would burst the old leather. Now, what does Jesus mean by all of this? Yes, he is referring to the fact that the new covenant cannot be contained or the old law cannot contain the new covenant. That is an aspect of it, but he's actually looking at the vessel itself. What he's saying here is that there's an old wineskin, the old uh, leather, so to speak, was the nation of Israel. It was the law. It was the way in which God revealed himself to the world, and that was through the nation of Israel. It was through the old law, through that ceremony. But the nation of Israel did not want to accept the new wine that Jesus had to offer. They didn't want anything to do with it. They rejected Jesus. They crucified Jesus. They did not want Jesus. So what does Jesus do? Jesus needs a new vessel. 
a new vessel to proclaim his glory, a new vessel to proclaim the gospel. And so what Jesus does is he sets Israel aside and he focuses his attention to proclaim his truth to who? The church. The church. Now, we don't preach here because I don't believe that the Bible teaches that, what we refer to as replacement theology. In other words, we don't believe that, that the Bible talks about how the church replaces Israel. Okay, we do believe that God still has a purpose for Israel, but right now Israel has been set aside and how God has dispensing his glory throughout the, throughout the world, and he's doing that through the body of Christ, known as the church. Jesus hints to this in Matthew chapter 16, verse 18, where he says, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. We see in Matthew chapter 28, verses 18 through 20, the official um, decree of the church. He says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I've commanded you. And lo, I am with you always, even until the end of the age. And so the covenant, that grace that Jesus has to offer and what he says here is so wonderful. It is so magnificent that not only can the old law contain it, it actually needs a new vessel because the old vessel won't mesh up with the new grace that Jesus has to offer. And so therefore, Jesus has commissioned the church, that's me and you. We have a church locally, but the church globally, Christians overall, to be the proclaimers. And so we have the family here, the McKnight family, they are the church, the global church that is going to proclaim the truth of the gospel to the deaf community in the Dominican Republic. God has chosen us to be the ones to do that. But there's a final point that I want to make here, and it's a sobering verse that Matthew does not record. Matter of fact, it is only, it is only Luke that records this. Luke's presentation of the gospel in chapter, uh, Luke chapter 5, verse 39, uh, it adds this reference that Jesus gives. He talks about the two analogies. He says about the patch and the garment and the sewing, and then he talks about the wineskins, and then he adds this. He says, and no one having drunk old wine, immediately desires new, for he says, the old is better. Jesus knew that the inquisitors really had no desire for the message of Jesus because they were comfortable with the rituals. Jesus highlights the real problem with man, and that was simply his unwillingness to change. I want to close with this final story here to help us think about this for just a moment. Um, when I was growing up, my mom would oftentimes, not too much, but she would cook meatloaf. Now, uh, my mom and dad are not fans of meatloaf, and so therefore she did not have the opportunity to perfect the recipe, so it wasn't good. And so uh, I could say that because my mom would agree, my mom's a great cook, but that one, I dreaded that when I knew that was on the menu for that evening. To make matters worse, I never had good meatloaf from that point growing up. I went to college, and many of you know that college food is terrible for you. You don't pay for the college food. They served meatloaf. It was worse than what my mom made. I hated it. My wife grew up in a family that was the opposite of that. They perfected the meatloaf recipe. But I'll be honest with you, when we were first married, my wife made meatloaf, and I was like, ah, don't know if I'm going to eat that tonight. And uh, that goes over really well when, you, when your wife cooks something for you. And so I, I didn't want to uh, have marital problems that early in our marriage, and so I psyched myself up and I ate it. 
and it was fantastic. It was the best meatloaf I've ever had. She converted me to now like her meatloaf. My, my, my unwillingness to try her meatloaf, her new and improved meatloaf, was based upon the perception that I had of meatloaf that was not good. So therefore, I did not want the new stuff. I was content with hating the old stuff. What, the point that Jesus is making here is that you, as the Pharisees and as the followers of John the Baptist, you are content with the old stuff. You are content with your rituals, you're content with your laws, you're content with living this certain way of constant guilt and shame. And you're okay with that because to you, that tastes good. And you don't want the new stuff that I have to offer because you're content with the old stuff. But Jesus says, if you would just taste what I have to offer, you will never go back to the old stuff. The Bible says in Psalm that to, for us to taste and see that the Lord he is good. And so I urge you, Christian, this morning, where are you in your spiritual life? Have you been renewed and regenerated? Not that you've been resaved, that doesn't happen, but have you, have you have a fresh and a new outlook in the grace that Jesus has to offer? If not, maybe you're practicing the rituals and you're not tasting everything of what Jesus has to offer. I encourage you this week to relish in the grace and the comfort and the mercy that Jesus has to offer through his new covenant.